Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out all the stuff that we've been riding and reviewing recently over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so patent applications can really peel back the curtain on what is coming in the years to come from the bike industry. They're also incredibly dry and hard to parse. Fortunately, Dan Bacon of Wheelbased is here to help. And so we decided to have Dan on the podcast this week to talk about some of the more interesting recent filings and to have a bigger picture chat about what the bikes we'll be riding in three or five or ten years might look like. We also get into it about cockpit integration, electronic, well, everything, frankly, active suspension, and a whole lot more. And I do my best, but probably fail, to not sound like a grumpy old man through all of it. So let's get right into my conversation with Dan. Well, so today on Bikes and Big Ideas, we've got Dan Bacon of Wheelbased on talk about a bunch of the interesting stuff that's been patented and proposed in the bike world. So, Dan, how are you today and where are you today? I am good, man. Thank you very much for having me. I live in uh, Colorado, Golden, Colorado in the foothills. Yeah, really enjoy living here. Have a great, great time riding bikes. Good, a lot of good trails. Good deal. So, yeah, for people who might not be familiar with your site, you're the guy behind wheelbase.com, which is basically the way I I describe it is just devoted to analyzing and discussing patent applications in the bike world. And it's kind of a cool dive into some of the wilder, more out there stuff that is being sort of floated in that space that may or may not show up as actual products sometime down the line. But figured to have you on to chat about some of the stuff and kind of see what we can do as far as reading the tea leaves is to what we're going to be riding in however many years out it all is. Yeah, it's uh, there's some wild stuff coming out. I mean, the e-bike space is really just just blowing up. I mean, I think uh, I think in like August or July or something like that, there was a hundred patents just in bikes in that month, and that's that that is a lot and just ideas. And that's month after month after month, and it's 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 growing. It's you can watch you can watch it grow over the last, I think, year or so that I've been doing this, almost a year. And you can see the where the real money is going towards um towards e bikes. And I guess we can get into that later, where where the where it's going. But it is very interesting to see see where their brains are at, how they're how they're doing this. And uh I'm glad I get to share it with everybody. I'm glad I have it's my contribution my social contribution to the uh to the sport that I really love. Yeah, you've been doing some interesting work over there. Before we get into some of the specific patents. I would be curious just for a little bit about your background and how you got started in doing this whole project. Where'd that come from? Oh, we can have a whole podcast on that. All right. So (laughs) I got my engineering degree and then I said, when I got my degree, I was going to go make race cars. And so I spent a while making race cars for, uh, in NASCAR, um, doing aerodynamic research. And I just sort of got burned out. Uh, it's a lot to do, to do, to race. Uh, you got to really love it. And I just kind of moved out to Colorado and met a, met an attorney and he's developed a, what's called a natural language processing software to automate the patent process. And I just, uh, started writing these out of the sheer boredom of, of dealing with semiconductors and artificial intelligence all day. And I was like, oh, I can read these. I bet people would love to read about this too. And uh, and here we are. It's uh, People do like to read about it. Uh, I guess my uh, my terse language is uh, can be 
loved or loathed at, at times, but uh, it, it, I try to be entertaining. They're the most boring documents in the world, so you gotta you gotta spice them up a little bit. And they're very yeah. That's that's basically how I got into this. Well, yeah, we'll we'll get into some of the more specific stuff here, and we'll have links to everything we talk about in the show notes. So if you're kind of wanting to follow along, he's listening with Dan's write ups. We'll have links for all of those in there. So I think kind of the big through line of the stuff we've pulled to talk about here is there's a lot of electronic stuff going on and a lot of kind of attempts at integration and automation of things on bikes. So that yeah, you're right. That is where we're that is where we're heading. We are going to have electric bikes for a long time and that is where where the money's going we're going to have active systems these motors are going to work better and better i am no e-bike expert as like riding and functionality i don't haven't done it very much but i can tell you that that is where uh where we're going to see some real advancements where the that you know from a fundamental standpoint of a business from a business perspective these companies realize that the mountain biking is hard, right? I mean, you gotta, you gotta pedal that shit up and it, it can get exhausting. And the vast majority of people don't want to do that. So how do you, how do you get more people into biking? You just make it easier and it's a lot of fun and just add a motor you're going to get a whole new sector, whole new spe- person that's going to get into mountain biking explicitly because it has become faster and easier to do. Yeah, I think I think you're not wrong about that. Though also, a lot of the stuff we're going to be talking about here doesn't have anything to do with having motors for propelling the bike forward. There's, it's a lot of just electronic everything. And I do say that because I do not write about the motors. I There's so many of them that come out for motors and controllers I do not write about those because they are so boring to even read and write and complicated. Man, they are complicated. Nobody's going to want to read that. And I don't want to write about it. And yeah, that's it. I just, yeah, it's, there's, there's, there's nothing. There's a lot that they're doing with motors and nobody's, I'm not going to write about them. <laughs> well, to get into some of the stuff you have written about recently, though, we'll start off with one that is in fact not actually electronic. And this is SRAM's recent patent for integrated brake design. And this is kind of like an attempt to hide the brake lines in the handlebar of the bike so that you don't have visible external brake hoses, which people who are regular readers of Blister might have noticed that I just wrote an article complaining about how I think internal cable routing is stupid. And this is one that I am extremely unexcited about, but it's interesting and different. So Dan, why don't you give us a quick rundown on what SRAM's trying to do here? Sure. First, have you? I don't know if you've seen Canyons the way that they do their internal routing in quotes, but they have the best internal route. I know I roast Canyon quite a bit on my website because their patents are are questionable, but they have the best internal cable routing design where it's not really internal; it's just under a little plastic cover under the down tube. Anyway, so this one, yes, SRAM's got this uh, integrated master cylinder assembly that is clearly there to compete with. Magura's uh, Magura system, and the big complaint with Magura's system was that it had almost zero uh, adjustability, and while but it looked really clean. Um, in this case, they've they've definitely got a quite a bit more adjustability in this, 
um, and then where the where the lever can can be moved, you know, reasonable amount, or what it appears to be a reasonable amount. The whole master cylinder brake assembly is all located inside the grip, and like you said, maintaining this, man, I, I you know, and I really love to hear from people like you because I just write them. Now I and I would love to start start this. I love starting discussions, and I want to actually want to hear if you've how would you like I mean you probably wouldn't like this on your bike but how would you like this on your bike would you at all would you ride this no I'm not interested in this one at all <laughs> zero so I mean basically yeah there are a whole bunch of reasons for that one is that like you said this one does at least let you rotate the brake lever on the bar for positioning but you still can't move the brake lever in and out on the much or at all does not seem does not seem like you can do that. If there is a way, they did not specify how you could do that. But it it almost seems like if you do shorten whatever these this what looks like plastic or rubber strap around it, if you do shorten that, you can't then can't lengthen it. So once you go once you cut it, or I'm just making an assumption uh, because like I said, they don't say how it's adjustable like that. The other thing that I did get a lot of complaints on my Instagram was that there are there are holes in your handlebars. Do you want holes in your handlebars? I mean, you can work around it. You can add material. You make the thing heavier again. But yeah, so to back up a little bit, the way this one works is that basically it's kind of you put the master cylinder in inside the grip, essentially. And then there's a little actuator on the brake lever that pulls on a couple of tabs basically that run underneath the grip or pull on the end of the master cylinder to compress fluid and move it through the through the line and uh, actuate the brakes and so yeah then lets you put the hose through the middle of the handlebar which okay i mean it's it's purely for aesthetics basically and it just seems like an absolutely massive pain in the ass to work on for one thing i'm imagining that it would be really hard and really fiddly to set hose lengths and get everything connected through the bar uh like i said you can't adjust the position of the brake lever in and out on the bar which i think then also means that you're stuck with whatever width the handlebar happens to come at you you're not then trimming your bars to the desired width without moving the brake levers to compensate. So you've lost that ability too. you have to use their proprietary grip and bar for it. And all of this just to make the hoses go away. I, I really can't get my head around that. Who wants this? I don't understand. And I've said, I've said this a lot. And if, if you follow me, I've said this a lot where appearance in the bike industry appearance is, is king and industrial design is king. And I, I, I spent $90 on a, on a seat because it was blue. I didn't need it. I had a perfectly good seat, but I bought it because it was blue. And in this case, I mean, it, the, the appearance of things, the anodizing uh, is so important. And I do want to take it back to a, I got a comment from someone that mentioned the way that this is designed will probably give you a lot more leverage on the master cylinder. So this could definitely open up the door if we're going to try to flip up flip a positive out of this this could open up the door for a much stronger brake a lot bigger pistons a lot bigger fluid reservoirs and so i mean it could could make for a stronger brake i'm not so sure on that point i mean I, I get you that you could have more leverage on it but at some point you're you're still basically just trading off 
leverage, i.e. power for total amount of lever throw. And you can already make a break as powerful as you want by just making pistons bigger, but you do have more lever throw to go with it. And so I don't I don't see how this really opens up a new possibility or fundamentally changes that trade off, I guess, is what I mean. It's it's possible that it may it may not, because like you said, the brakes are I can lock my brakes up now. I mean, I don't need them any stronger. I'm, I can lock up my codes real easy. Uh, so I don't need them any stronger. And and to your to your first point, this is ultimately aesthetics. That's really all of this is how good can you look? And this is it. And, you know, and I got I get uh, I get a lot of comments from uh, from mechanics. So this is a nightmare nightmare for mechanics. And uh, I, I, I definitely can see that it's it's not going to be fun for a mechanic to have to deal with this if this if if this comes to fruition yeah that's mostly what it comes down to for me is i just don't care nearly enough about the way external cables look to want to put up with any of these kinds of trade-offs for it but i mean like we said internal cable routing has taken over people clearly feel otherwise or at least bike companies think that they do so this kind of stuff is coming, and um, I guess I'm just going to have to learn to deal with it. Probably, it is probably coming. And there's an, from a big picture. There's another. I have another article on a Magura uh, integrated brake system. So that's two companies right there make that are putting research and time and mo- lots of time and money into this stuff. So it's a good chance it's going to come. Yeah. Well, and for a third one, taking a somewhat different approach too, we've got Shimano's recent patent for electronic braking. <laughs> And it's basically what it sounds like. Instead of having a master cylinder in the lever, you've got a, an encoder and communicating the information to the, to a battery-powered actuator to squeeze a hydraulic brake. This one's a lot, sim- lot simpler than the last one. And in your article on that, you made the point that we've had uh, brake-by-wire systems in cars for a long time. And, you know, they work. Our cars still stop. But I think the thing that stands out to me that is still a fundamental difference between this and the systems that we have in cars is that the car systems do still have a full hydraulic failsafe, essentially, where the pedal is still attached to a master cylinder and under the normal electronic operation of it, it's just using that pressure as an input to an electronic system to tell the car to actuate the brakes. But if something goes wrong with the electronics you still do have just a regular basic hydraulic brake going on there. And with the Shimano one, you don't. It is ju- it is purely reliant on the electronics to do it. And once your battery dies or whatever else goes wrong with it, you don't have brakes anymore, which seems a little scarier to me. It, it, is, it is sketchy. So, so there's, a, there's a detector in the lever, there's a controller, there's an actuator, and there is what's called a conversion mechanism, which is just a, a little fluid reservoir. And so the brake, the actual grip, the handle is going to detect where your, where your lever is. It's going to then tell a controller, computer, says, hey, the, this guy is squeezing the brakes. We should do something. And so then it tells the uh, electric actuator to then drive a piston. And in this, in this case, it's a, a screw type linear actuator, which will drive a piston into a reservoir. And so the, it's actually really, it is really quite simple. I mean, it's a very simple design. Um, there is not a lot that could go wrong with it. Um, but there is always 
a chance for electronic brakes for something to go wrong with it. I didn't note it in the article, uh, but there is a failsafe in this, in that Shimano says this can also be hooked up to a dynamo, which then you need a bike with a dynamo. And if those, for those that don't know, a dynamo is a reverse generator that creates power with the back wheel spinning. Um, so it just sort of, it just always charges your battery. Um, and so in this case, I did, in this case, I mean, I, like I said, it's really simple. And it's also, I also noted that this could be very simply made into a wireless system as well, which is even scarier. Right. <laughs> right. Um, so I, just, I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's a cool, it's a cool idea. I, I go through a lot, a lot of Shimano patents. Um, they are by far the company that's making the most patents in the, in the bike industry by a wide margin. And so, uh, this one, I can kind of tell this one's really, this is more of a concept. Shimano's, you know, you can kind of tell when something is like their SRAM one that we just talked about. That one looks very real. That one looks like it's very, could very much be released. This one, on the other hand, in a current state, what I'm reading probably isn't going to be released, but you never know, man. It's, it's, it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see if that happens. I mean, but like you said, the the SRAM one definitely looks way more fully fleshed out and way closer to coming to fruition. If Shimano says we have a 99.9999% chance of success, would you run this? <laughs> so I think I think with the SRAM, like the SRAM one, I have no interest in putting that on my own bike. If someone sent me a, t- a bike to test with that on it, like, sure, I'd ride it. It'd be fine. And I think I'm probably at about the same place with the Shimano one. Like... I do think they can make it work. It's not like I would categorically refuse to ride a bike with that on it, but I also don't want it. I don't know. This is just the podcast where I sound like a total retro grouch who doesn't want anything to change. I don't know. <laughs> Traditional. You're a traditionalist. There it is. We'll get into some stuff that I'm I'm less grumpy about here in a little bit. But uh, yeah, these first couple, man, just making stuff more complicated for the sake of mostly aesthetics seems just totally counterproductive to me though it is probably worth being fair to shimano here that there are some interesting possibilities what you could do with an electronic actuator from an actual performance standpoint so for example you know that could be the path forward to stuff like abs on a bike it also would let you have potentially a lot more control over stuff like bite point for example you could actually adjust that in a meaningful way whereas with I've written about this a bit on Blister before, but like the typical bite point adjustments on current hydraulic brakes just mean that you have a section of the brake lever before it really starts to engage where pretty much nothing happens because you've just moved the piston back away from the timing port and the lever and blah, blah, blah. Go read my uh, Hayes Dominion A4 review if you want a better explanation of that than I can do verbally right now. But uh, so... This one, unlike the SRAM integrated one, does at least seem like it has some potential kind of performance upsides to it and different ways to go about doing some things, but uh, also seems a little scary. So something different. Well, to keep it rolling here, another sort of big area of focus and a lot of attention recently has been in the realm of active suspension. So Fox has had their live valve system out for a while now, but as people will probably be unsurprised to hear, SRAM and Owens are both working on some own versions of their implementations of that. So 
I start with the Owens one, just to, to pick one. And one thing I am really curious about is, do you think that this is what has been hiding under that carbon fiber cover on Loic Bruni's race bike for the last bit? Uh, if you weren't about to say it, I was just about to say that. It's entirely possible that some something related to that, to this active suspension is on Loic's bike for sure. Um, there is no... I mean, there's wires coming out of the suspension. It's clearly an active system. It's clearly. I'd be very surprised if all they're doing is doing data acquisition. I, I, don't, I just don't think that's where they're at. You can see all the all the wires coming out and they're or they're covering up the top of the top of the shock. And I have an explicit active suspension system right in front of my face that Olin's has released. And so, yes, I believe that that's an active suspension. And I also believe that there is no coincidence that Loic is so good and he also has, he just looks so smooth and so perfect and so refined on a racetrack. And, I don't, and besides the fact that he is a, 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 an animal, this definitely helps. So take us through this one. For people who aren't super familiar with it off the bat, Fox's live valve, essentially what that's doing is it's got a... Some sensors and a controller that are mounted underneath the top tube of the bike, and it is effectively just toggling the fork and shock between kind of a regular open mode and effectively kind of the same sort of closed off mode that you have if you were to flip the climb switch on your shock manually. Uh, And it's just doing it electronically and automatically, and I think they claim three millisecond response time, so it's just doing it constantly on and off, on and off very, very fast as required of it, depending on what the sensors are detecting, whether you're hitting a bump or pedaling or whatever happens to be going on with the bike. But the old one's one's pretty different. So run us through that real fast. So they're they're basically taking, they have sensors that uh, sense information of, of the bike, you know, basically at the, I don't know, it doesn't say where they're at, but the reality is they're going to be at or near the the axles and they have a little, like you said, they have a little controller that is um, uh, programmed with some algorithms and then the controller then uh, tells the suspension what to do and what to, and how to actuate. So uh, just a, just a high level uh, review of how active suspension is going to work. They're going to have three components, a sensor, a control controller, which is a computer and actuators of some sorts, whether it be a, fully um, active or semi-active type actuator. Um, And a fully active would be that the computer would move the suspension itself. A semi-active would just open valves. Um, And in this case, every bike is semi-active that we've seen. Um, And so this one will take this sensed information and then rather than what, what, and I'm just saying what Olin says as a prior art and what current systems do is they'll basically react to a, to an input, a bump, uh, every single time. And so when it hits a bump, it'll react. When it hits a bump, it'll react and send a, send a signal to the suspension every single time. Olin's system is trying to compartmentalize that and maintain a, uh, a suspension setting for a set amount of time so that's not constantly opening closing opening closing opening closing a bazillion times 
Um, and they're saying that this will, uh, basically this is, this is more for battery life than anything else. And it's not doing a million processes every three, whatever milliseconds. It's, it's sort of spacing out those processes. So it'll basically sense a, a rock garden. And then once the bike senses that it's done with the rock garden, it's going to then go in another mode, berm mode. It's going to sense a berm. It's going to go to berm mode. It's going to go into jump mode. Going back to Loic's bike, he's got a little button on his uh, handlebar. It wouldn't surprise me if that little button, and this is pure speculation, wouldn't surprise me if that little button is what ta- is a manual toggle, what this patent does automatically, um, is manually toggling through uh, rock garden mode or berm mode or jump mode. And they've got, they've, these, these engineers have probably gotten enough uh, data to know how to optimize each, each section to, to, you know, you want rebounds open, you want, you want compressions open. What do you, what do you, what do you want to do to optimize this section? And it wouldn't surprise me if that's, that button is what that's, what's, what that's doing. Yeah, that's interesting. And one of the things that I am curious about with this one, that the Olin's patent doesn't go super deep into is how they're actually changing suspension settings. Right. And so, like we were saying before, the Fox live valve stuff is effectively just toggling an open versus closed compression mode. And it's a totally binary setup. Where you, it's not like it is adding two clicks of low speed compression or, or whatever on any basis. It's much more. Well, it's, it, is, it is binary in that. And the Owens one sort of alludes to the possibility of finer tuning of setup, but doesn't actually go into any particulars of how they would do it. And so I'm very curious to see if they have something in the works where you can really fundamentally change settings on a much more granular, finer level, or whether it's more like the Fox of a much more binary setup. But certainly the way they talk about having so many different modes seems to suggest that there's more going on than that. Yeah, though these these systems eventually will be will not be binary and they'll effectively effectively have these these three dimensional maps of of um of compression and rebound settings um based on whatever input they're getting and the computer will then decide based on based on where where the bike is in this map how to set the compression and rebound settings um and i think i wouldn't surprise me if there's going to be air settings also um at some point i know i've seen a shimano one where they have adjustable air side vague very very vague and it's small mention but it's it's the obvious obvious next step it's going to happen it'll be very granular and very fine-tuned and uh it'll it'll be it'll be very interesting but yeah like you said this one does suggest that hey this is it's gonna be much more granular and and will be will be good for it'll know when you're about to jump it'll know when you're about to go through a rock garden it'll set it accordingly rather than open close climb downhill while we're on the subject uh srams at it too how about you tell us what they've got in mind here uh srams the worst kept secret behind the yeti e-bike i mean god if if i i have pictures on my website of of uh spy photos and fcc filings and some guy at trestle took a picture of one and uh it's funny i i I posted this uh to uh to the vital tech forums and some guy 
some guy goes, Oh, I remember that. I took a picture of this in 2019 at Trestle and just never, I guess, never posted, never thought about it. And he was like, Well, that looks really familiar. And sure enough, it's back in 2019, this was being tested at, at Trestle in, uh, in Colorado. But so this is the int- the very interesting part about this one that the other ones don't have is this is entirely wireless. And it, and the reason that's so interesting is Fox makes it very clear in their patents that they're not wireless because data rates between wireless commu- wireless communication signal data rates are very are significantly slower. A wired signal is a lot faster, so it can make decisions a lot lot quicker and a lot easier. So they must have figured, and they don't say it in this or what they figured out, but they must have figured out something with signaling or processing to to speed up a live system to allow a live system work wirelessly. I mean, it's it's very, it's fascinating, but this is going to do the same thing as any other active system. It's going to, it's got a little um, attachment on the top of the damper side. I'm talking about the shock right now. It's got a damper side motor actuator. It'll basically just, like I said, sense, sense information, open and close the damper with a little, um, with a little screw type, I think this one's the screw type linear actuator, and it'll just open and close your your damper settings. And yeah, I just don't think this is going to be another another open close situation. This is going to be a a fine tune type situation where it knows when you're pedaling, it knows when you're going downhill. It it's gonna it's gonna do its best to optimize your ride um, based on what the engineers think is is the best. I don't have any documents showing the 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 fork um, side, what the fork's doing, but I mean, there's some spy shots of it. There's FCC filings of it, so that is also coming. So it's going to be a whole ecosystem of, and it's going to have a cadence, a, a pedal sensor as well. So it's this whole ecosystem that um, is completely wireless and, frankly, quite quite impressive. I mean, it's pretty amazing that they've that they've been able to do this on your site. You do have some photos of the shock damper side of that in, and uh, what it looks like to me from that is basically that they've got two different compression shim stacks in the bridge and kind of a, like a low speed bypass around both of them. And the actuator can vary how much flow it's able to send through each of those not fully independently, but kind of you have a pretty big range of adjustment of varying flow through the different shim stacks to s- arrive at a variety of different configurations there. So that one does seem like there's some possibilities for changing compression a fair bit. It looks like it only works on the compression side, at least in their patent filing of it. I don't, it didn't, didn't appear to do anything on rebound. I do want to point out that it's really, really nice when I write these and I get input from people like you that clearly. I'm not an expert and I'm not going to claim to be an expert and I try to bring expert voices to everybody, but it's nice to hear input. Like I, like you're like you're mentioning the shim stacks. I didn't even notice at all that that was in this and I didn't mention it, but it's nice to get comments and people, their input on what, what they're seeing and what's going on. So we, it's a, so we can get a better picture of what, what we think is, is coming. Um, but yeah, I like getting input like that. It's fun to hear. It's fun to hear what other people have to say. These are so complicated and the, the, the patent filings tend to not cover every little detail of what they have in mind. And so you got to, there's a lot of kind of reading between the lines you have to do with looking at 
the images they include and stuff to suss things out. So, and I, you know, I think you do a pretty good job of that. It's you got some cool stuff on the site. They, they just, yeah, they just explain what they have to explain and then they get out. That's all they do. They don't have to explain much more about anything. So one thing that I am curious about this Ram one that I don't remember having totally gotten my head around from, from reading through it is, is so there, there is a separate, controller somewhere else on the bike rather than just those units that's that are stuck on the ends of the fork and shock i just don't know i think they all work independently like i i don't know the answer to that i don't think there's a controller i like like a central controller i'm not sure if there is that's what i thought too but one of the things that i i was trying to get my head around for how that would work then is that would seem to suggest that they're putting the sensors for the system in those units on the fork and shock which on the fork, that seems more straightforward because you at least have on any given bike, it's in the same place, it's oriented the same way. On a shock, you would then have to have some pretty interesting calibration for a given bike in order to deal with the fact that it's oriented all, any which way depending on what the bike is. And depending on the bike, the sensor unit may or may not be on the moving end of the shock. I think you're 100% correct right there with that rear shock because it is somehow they're going to have to know where that rear axle is and they're going to have to know in space. You're going to have to basically tell – this is my assumption. You'd have to tell the the rear shock controller what bike you have so that it know it, it's got to be preloaded with, hey, this is the bike that I have. This is where it is. The axle is in space. This is all the parameters about the kinematics and then it will – function uh for that bike that's what i assume is going to happen uh, it's gonna be interesting if they don't do that i don't know how it's going to work but yeah and i mean certainly companies tuning shocks for a given bike is normal that you know always always shock spec gets messed around with all the time so that's certainly seems solvable and not something totally out of left field but just an interesting aside that I was sort of thinking through as I was reading through this and going like, well, how's this going to work? Kind of scratching my head for a minute. And I guess that's going to be another piece of the puzzle that they have to work out with that one. But certainly seems like a whole bunch more electronic active suspension is coming. And I guess I'd be curious for your take sort of more generally about how this is really going to change bikes. What what are we going to see from this? I mean, you talk about this a bit on, on the site, but Active suspension has been around for a long time in a bunch of motorsports applications and has mostly been banned in in most of them. And what is this going to mean for bikes? So I have I have a very I polarizing um, opinions. I think this would be great in a trail bike. I don't care what you're riding on the trail. Uh, you know, as long as you're having fun, this looks like it's going to be a lot of fun to figure out and, you know, uh, to, you know, to ride something like this really technologically advanced like this would be really interesting from a racing perspective. Um, I have an issue with the uh, performance of, of a rider and a bike to be out of the rider's hands. And um, this is coming from somebody that was a race car designer for years. And, and I, you can see firsthand that ra- that engineers are n- not great for racing as a whole. It removes parity. Um, it's basically who's got the most money. That's who wins. 
and I'm not, I, and that's not good for, from a viewer's perspective, from an engineer's perspective, it's awesome. You know, it's just another tool to make this thing go faster. And I mean, that's, and that's all, that's all your job is as an engineer is I need to, a race engineer. If you're racing, this, uh, is to make it go faster. Um, it's gonna, it's, 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 we're right on the cusp of this active suspension thing and it's going to make, th- make, um, it's going to make the bikes a little bit more expensive, maybe a lot more expensive, depending on how they, they sort of do research into this. Um, and it's just, it's, it's the next very large dial that these companies can, uh, can, can use on these bikes to, to go faster. And it's, uh, like I said, I, I got an issue with taking, taking control out of the, the rider's hands, driver's hands. Uh, I like, I, I like, I'm a purist with, when, when, with racing and I want to see, I want to see a, amazing racers do amazing things. I don't want to see the engineers, uh, having a direct impact on how the bike goes. It's one thing to do data acquisition, dial the bike, get it back out there and sort of yeah, dial a bike like that. But it's another thing to have a computer think for you. Uh, it's just, it's too far. It's too far for me and any racing and any, any, and that's just, that's not for just bikes. That's any racing. I want to watch a racer race on the flip side of that. I would love to see a group B style rally car e-bike where let's see how fast we can make an e-bike. Let is literally a full group, like no rules, how fast, get the active suspension on that, get the motors on that, do whatever you got to do. How fast can we make an actual bike? But it'd just be like a whole separate class. That'd be fun. Oh, man. I hadn't thought of that. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to need to sit with that one for a second, I think. I'd watch that all day, as long as there's a full separate class. Analog class versus electric class. I know people people don't like the word analog. I apologize for using that. Yeah, we do need to figure out a better better terminology for that. I don't know what the right answer is either to distinguish between e-bikes and whatever the other class of normal bikes is. Don't, yeah, haven't nailed that one yet. We'll work on that. Anyway, <laughs> to bring it back around to some more active electronic stuff that we've been seeing. There's the Shimano recent patent for an active electronically actuated dropper post. How about you run us through that one real fast? That seat post is weird, man. So we've seen a couple uh, patents for what's called a screw type linear actuator uh, seat post. And in my opinion, that's going to be the next obvious answer for seat posts. So we're not going to have fluid chambers and there's not going to be air chambers. It's literally just going to sit on a screw. The screw, the little motor is going to turn a screw and the seat's going to go up and down. Uh, you don't need to sit on it to make it go down. And in this case, Shimano basically making an active seat post. So it is really complicated and it took me a long time to figure out what the hell was going on with this one in the briefest way that I can describe it. It's going to raise and lower the seat post in certain scenarios like cornering. It knows when you're cornering, so it's going to balance out the centrifugal and centripetal force uh, it's going to sense that and then it's going to lower the seat post so your body can get lower. Um, when you do a jump, it's going to lower. Uh, and so that's basically really all it's doing is is knowing 
when to raise. It's going to sense when to raise and lower and then actually raise and lower automatically without you doing anything. So that's, I think that, yeah. And we've seen a, we've seen a linear type, um, a screw type linear actuator, um, from Trek as well. They, that was, that was, you know, a couple months ago, I think it was last year. Yeah. That's going to be, that'll be the next obvious iteration because it opens up the ability for the seat post to go down on its own rather than just up. Yeah. That part of it sounds cool. I can get on board with that. A little more skeptical of the automatic thing. I'm, Imagining that going wrong in all kinds of ways doesn't doesn't take a lot of imagination to uh, to think how that could end poorly. Yeah, I think you're right that the electronic actuation that lets you raise and lower without touching the seat seems cool, and a lead screw seems like a pretty good way to do it. They get used in all kinds of industrial stuff. They work. Back to serviceability. That thing would be super super easy to service, and I would love that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is something. Frankly, it seems like it would be a more robust, more reliable system than our current hydraulic ones by a, a pretty long way. So, yeah, I, I can skip the the automatic stuff, but that seems like a great application for some electronics. Just just give me a button on the handlebar for it. But, well, before we wrap up here, anything else you want to run through on the recent front? So we have uh, we've got a couple patents that have been coming out lately uh, from automotive companies, and well, there's not a lot of them. Uh, they are going to be very impactful in that the fact that the car companies are even paying one lick of attention to the bike industry. Uh, the Ford has a, has patented something for a cargo rack for their, for the back of the beds. The Hyundai, Hyundai's is very interesting and it really won't impact any of us. I don't think it'll impact any of us at all. I think Hyundai, Hyundai's got a design for a lug type bike. So the, you know, you'll have top tube, down tubes connected through lugs. Well, the lugs are going to be stamped in two halves and then welded together. So this is very clearly a patent for a bike that is going to be mass produced at a huge scale for places like China. Uh, where the bike is still a huge part of their of transportation uh and it, it's it looks what it looks like it's just going to be a very simple very fast very effective way to make a bike rather than hydroforming things and uh you know the typical typical manufacturing process let's stamp out a billion head lugs let's put some straight tubes between between all the lugs and ship it and that's it that could be uh, that could be interesting if that actually makes it to market. The latest one is really interesting. It's by Ford, and it is a <laughs> it is a weird derailleur. And in this case, it's just the front derailleur. Um, it does say that this can be used for a rear derailleur, but they don't have any pictures. It's just sort of a legal language to cover their bases. So, a little bit of background. Material there is a material called nitinol. Nitinol is uh, nickel titanium, and the NOL of nitinol is the Navy Ordnance Lab. Um, and so, it's a what's called a shape changing or a sh- sorry a shape memory material. In effect, it has a shape, and when you heat it, it will change to another shape. And when you cool it, it'll change to another shape. 
And so what they what they're doing is they have two nitinol wires on a uh, chain guide over the front or front front gears, and as they apply a current to these nitinol wires, the, they'll they'll change shape, which then will move the chain guide, which then will move the chain, and so that it'll actually heat up the wire. So yeah, I, when I first thing I read, I was like, how hot is this going to get? And they actually say it's going to be a hundred degrees C. I was like, whoa, that is hot. That I do not want that next to my leg. But they do mention that it's going to be nice and insulated, so it shouldn't do that. But yeah, it's it's there's no moving parts, not one single moving part. Uh, it purely works on the physics of a of a nitinol material and heat. That's it. But it is electric, so you would need to p- power it somehow. And they do say that this is. They do mention a lot that this is going to be is directed towards uh, automatic shifting. So when it senses, you know, cadence torque, it'll shift on its own just by heat, just by heat. That's it. And it's like, <laughs> I was a little blown away by this one. <laughs> yeah, this one seems nuts. Why do you think Ford is even attempting to wade into this space at all? Uh, to make money. I mean, like I said earlier, the the these companies are now realizing that e-bikes are a, a gold a gold mine, and Ford is has recognized that they are that they could. I bet you they could, they could make some money doing this type of stuff. If nothing else, I bet you they may have had a little lab back there, and they go, "Hey, well, I bet we can put this on the derailleur," and then they patented it, and they're not going to do anything with it, which is totally possible, which is probably possible. But the fact that they're paying attention at all in their mind, they're going, hmm, bikes, this could be used for a bike. They're going to have all these other ideas that they've got on these cars. They go, hmm, this one could be for a bike too. And this one could be for a bike too. And eventually they're going to have a whole damn bike. A lot of these are, are kind of speculative and aren't, doesn't necessarily indicate that they have plans to launch a product next month or whatever. But yeah, the thought that it is the advent of e-bikes that is making automotive companies stand up and take notice of the bike world at all is interesting. And your thought is basically just that that feels like a big enough expansion of the market to them that it then feels worth kind of wading into. Yeah, they're they're not running a charity. If they can see that they can make money, they'll they'll make money. And the e-bike market has proven to be obscenely valuable. God, what's a what's a specialized what's a new specialized e-bike cost? Fifteen grand, something like that. Yeah, the top end S Works one. Yeah, that is uh, outrageous. Then you know that's gonna they're gonna go wow we sell we have cars that cost less than that uh, we should start making bikes and with their manufacturing power and their design power I mean it's gonna be it'll be very interesting if for somebody like Ford or GM decides to build a bike on their own it's going to it will shake up this industry it would be very interesting to see too what the Ford or GM or whoever it is, what their bike looks like in that the automotive world is very different than the bike one in that the companies who are producing cars aren't, they don't have the same modularity that bikes do currently, right? You know, you don't have Fox suspension and well, I mean, I guess that poor example, Fox does make some car suspension, but uh, you know what I mean? Like they're not doing the same, same shocks that you can swap across whichever vehicles and, Everything is pretty specific to uh, a given car, and they're and they're being engineered like from the ground up. Every all the stuff for the most part, you know, some odds and ends, like tires and whatnot. But 
for the most part, it's all not very modular in the way that bikes are. The drivetrains are not swappable around readily, et cetera. And so it would be interesting to see if, you know, we'll say Ford again decides to kind of stick with the classic bike route. Should they go that into that world or if they're just going to have a fully ground up Ford bike that is something totally off the wall that we haven't seen before. It'll be interesting. Seriously, it'll be it's a, it's an interesting time in, in the bike world. It's it's accelerating at an in, in insane pace. People are people that normally wouldn't look at it are looking at it. Um, and you can see it all of this through the patent filings. Yeah, there's some wild stuff going on, like we've saying, and there's a whole lot more on on your site. So people should go check that out, too. Dan, it's been a bunch of fun. Before I let you go, one last question, though. The name of the podcast is, after all, Bikes and Big Ideas. We've been talking about a lot of other people's big ideas, but do you have one of your own to share with us? Anything goes just something crazy and wild here. I actually do have a uh, an idea for a bike that I think is that I've never seen being designed or patented or anything like that. I am a firm believer that at least in the downhill space, a downhill bike, the seat and the seat post and the seat tubes are going to go away. And I say that because, so I just did, I did a test one day or a couple of days back at, at Trestle with my downhill bike and I took the seat off and I rode it and I saw, and I was like, what, how does this, how is this going to feel with, without a seat? And the fact you can get so much lower, you can move your body so much easier then with that, what do you do? What do you, why do you even have a seat on a downhill bike? I mean, it, it was, it was incredible to ride without a seat and I could move, like I said, I can move my body down, forward, back. I mean, and, uh, and it was just, it was an absolute joy to ride without a seat. Granted, there's some, there's some downsides that I figured out. Like, uh, if your foot comes off, that's not a great thing. Cause you don't have a seat to sit on, but do your best to not take your foot off. That's all you got to do. But it was it was significantly more fun. It was significantly faster. I felt more poised and everything. That's an interesting one. I have not heard that before. Okay. So downhill bikes, just get rid of seats entirely. It'll cut the weight of the bike down. It'll get your body down. It'll get whole center of gravity down on the bike. And I know that's going to sound nuts to people, but I'm telling you, I did it for quite a while and it was it felt great. You should try it. It's it was great. Interesting. Well, yeah, that qualifies as a big idea. You you, you got one there. No seat, no seats, no seat, no seat tubes, nothing. So you stand up, just stand up bike. You stand you stand it up ninety nine percent of the time anyway. What do you need to see for? I don't have a good rebuttal to that, but it's still blowing my mind a little bit. I don't know. Patented. Started it tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> perfect well dan this has been a bunch of fun thanks again for coming on and really appreciate the time thank you for having me and this was this was a lot of fun appreciate it that's it for this edition of bikes and big ideas and if you were enjoying these conversations then we would really appreciate it if you would take 30 seconds to leave us a five-star rating or review in apple podcasts i also want to say thanks to dan for the conversation thanks to taylor ahern for producing this episode and thanks to you for listening from all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we will talk to you again tomorrow on Gear 30, where we'll be checking in yet again with Matt Manzer, this time going deep on Atomic Ski Boot lineup. Bye, everybody.